Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. That's supposed to be funny. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's okay to laugh in church. Come on. It's okay to laugh in church, right? I mean, if we don't have the joy of the Lord in here, how can we have it out there, right? And even though a lot of things we do, and not most of the things we do, are very serious, life-altering, life-transforming, and eternal, we can still have the joy of the Lord. And uh, I was excited that the children left because I was kind of wondering how I was going to change my message a little bit because uh, the children are in here, and sometimes on the fly, when you're not preaching every Sunday back-to-back, you can do that, kind of draw from that... uh, All of that stuff that you've had for 40 years as a pastor, just kind of pull that out and just kind of change your message. But since the children are not here, then uh, we'll just go with what I had originally planned, okay? Okay? Okay. Uh, I moved here about 60 months ago, and um, I spent uh, the first, I don't know, seven months in people's basements while my wife was still in Wichita, Kansas, where I finished my, my former pastorate. We were trying to sell our home. She was trying to finish uh, her contract as a teacher. And so I I actually literally lived in people's basements, complete strangers, met them, introduced myself, and moved in. And uh, it was quite exciting. I am a missionary kid by my upbringing. My parents were missionaries to Brazil, so I speak fluent Portuguese. I'm used to having a lot of people in our home and used to being in strangers' homes and all of that. So it was not kind of weird for me. Now it would be weird for my wife because she lived most of her life in the same home, in the same town, went to the same church. And so uh, I'm, I'm a little bit different than she is. And uh, turned to her neighbor and said, it's okay to be different. <laughs> Looking back in the eye, I said, okay, that's right, it's okay because you're different. All right? And uh, anyway, so long story short, we finally uh, sold our house in Kansas. And we bought a house uh, just about three and a half, four months ago in Castle Rock. Well, uh, for the first couple of months, we opened our windows, and it was glorious. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Wow, the weather was awesome, and we were saving money on heating and cooling and all of that, and, and then all of a sudden, the heat arrived. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The heat got here all of a sudden. You know, I was telling somebody a while ago that uh, we complained last, winter, last summer because it was too hot and too dry. This year, it's too wet and too cool. We can't ever seem to be pleased, right? Anyway, so... Uh, we were out on the front porch. My wife and I were enjoying coffee, and we have this really nice little front porch, and uh, I heard the air conditioning kick on, and it sounded kind of weird, so I thought maybe I should call uh, the people that we had a contract with. And we bought the house that came with a two-year contract with this heating and cooling company. It was a free thing that the previous owner had purchased that was transferable, and so we picked up the phone, and I called them and, and uh, told them about what was going on, and she asked the question. She said, well, when would you like to have a technician come to your home? What do you think my response was? Yesterday. Not today, yesterday. You were supposed to anticipate my needs and already send a technician already right now, me tapping on my home because it's hot and the thing's not working properly. Right? Yesterday. How many of you have a problem with patience? Come on, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Keep it raised. 
Now look at the liars that are sitting next to you, okay? If you did not raise your hand, we all have a problem with patience, do we not? I mean, think about our Wi-Fi, right? How many of you are impatient when your Wi-Fi is slow? Come on. Or your cell doesn't work quite properly in some of the beautiful places in Colorado, which I've discovered, you know? We live in an instant society that wants instant gratification, and we think that we deserve it because we are Americans and we live in the United States of America and we just don't like to wait for anything, especially when it comes to God. We just don't like to wait. How many of you have a waiting problem? Come on, can I get a witness? Keep your hand raised. Those whose hands are not raised are also not telling the truth, okay? At the end of the service, we're going to have repentance and you're going to come forward and lay your burdens at the, and your sins at the feet of Jesus. We all have a problem with patience. I want to go to John chapter 21 today. I want to take a look at a passage in where we find the disciples who have a problem with waiting on God. And the problem they have is a problem we have. And often when we have a problem with patience, what do we do when God doesn't act in or according to our schedule, according to our time frame, we have a tendency to want to grab the bull by the horns, to grab the steering wheel, to push the pedal to the middle, and to make something happen. We want to make something happen because we just get tired of waiting. And as a result of that, what we're going to find is what happened to disciples often happens to us when we go it alone without God. Going without God always ends up catastrophic. When we push the pedal to the metal, grab the bull by the horns, grab the steering wheel, and make something happen, the end result is not what we ultimately desire from the outcome. It never is. It's disappointment, discouragement, defeat, and as a result of that, we have a tendency to look back in the rearview mirror. And in 40 years of pastoring, what I've learned is many people have a tendency to blame God for the outcome when God never had anything to do with the outcome because he didn't have anything with the decision that was made prior to the outcome. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is control. But I think sometimes he allows us to go on our own, to make it on our own, to do it on our own, to teach us a valuable insight and a valuable lesson about who he is and who he is to us. And in spite of our failure, God is a gracious, loving, kind, and merciful God, and he redeems and rescues us in spite of our failure and in spite of our mistakes. So let's go to John 21, and I just want to quickly take a look at, at it's a long passage today, so if you don't mind, I'd like to start with a, a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into the passage together. So let me pray. God, thank you for uh, the privilege and the opportunity we have to be in this place today to to be in your presence and to open your word, your word that is infallible, it's inerrant, it's absolutely true. It speaks into our lives, not just the way of salvation, but the way of discipleship, the journey that we're on as we seek to follow you, Jesus. And like your disciples who are on a journey, we too are on a journey each and every day to strive to live for you and to follow you and to obey you and to, to grow in you. And in this passage today, Lord, you're going to reveal something special to your disciples that I believe is life transformational in their lives, and I hope it'll be for ours as well today. Because we can, by your sovereignty, you allow us to go it alone and without you sometimes, so that in spite of our best effort, we, we will fail because we're not going 
with you. We're not listening to you. We're not yielding to you. And it's in the midst of that failure that you come to us as gracious and loving shepherd that you are and bring us back into a right relationship with you and then reveals unto us who you truly are. And God, I pray that today that those of us who are waiting on you for whatever reason, for whatever we're waiting on, some of us are waiting on you for something in our marriage, something in our family, something financial, something physical, something spiritual. We're waiting on you and we're wondering when are you going to intervene? When are you going to release? When are you going to to reveal yourself and and release us from our our current struggle in this this dynamic that's making us tense and 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 apprehensive and nervous. And Lord, while we wait, I pray that we would look to this passage and learn some insights that would be life transformational as you reveal yourself to us through your holy, holy word today. We ask this by your spirit to be true for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, let's take a look at the passage in John 21, verse 1. I want you to notice the disciples in their resolve, okay? The disciples in their resolve. They had a resolve, and their resolve was to make something happen. They wanted to make something happen. Notice the text in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. The words after this are important. It describes what happened after chapter 20 in the book of John, in the writing in the gospel according to John. In chapter 20, we know that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, but he was raised from the dead. We know that Mary went to the tomb and found the tomb empty and went back to the disciples, and two disciples run to the tomb. Who are they? Anybody know? James and John. Who gets there first? One of the disciples. You guys need to go back and read your Bible. Come on, guys. Okay. And uh, he stands at the entrance, the other bursts through, and they notice that, the, that Jesus' body was gone and his linens are wrapped there in its place. And so the disciples recognize and realize that Christ is gone. They're in their hiding place. Their doors are locked. Their, their, their windows are, are tightly sealed. They, they believe that somehow by, by doing that they can you know, sort of disguise themselves and hide from those who they believe are going to come after them next because they've murdered their their Savior, they've crucified their Lord. And in that hiding place, in that upper room, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus arrives, and Jesus stands in their midst for a little while, doesn't he? He doesn't reveal himself right off the bat, and then he reveals himself to the disciples. They finally realize that he's there and in their midst, and they can't believe it. And he says this incredible statement, peace be with you. And the same way he entered, he leaves in John 20, the presence of the disciples. Well, we know by John 20, there's one disciple who's not there. Anybody know who that is? Thomas. What is Thomas known for? The doubting Thomas. The reality is that all of the disciples doubted the resurrection of Christ, not just Thomas. They all did. And uh, Thomas said, I will not believe until I touch and see for myself. And he waited seven days later. Christ arrives at that place, that hiding place where they still were located, as he did before. He appears before Thomas, and Thomas sees him, and upon seeing him, he says this incredible statement, my Lord and my God. And he bows, and he worships Christ. And then all of a sudden, Christ disappears. Now we know that after this, this is what happens with the disciples. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. It is 
named Tiberias because of some historical reasons. We don't have time to go in that, but it's the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is now going to reveal himself to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Take incredible notation here on this that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. The disciples do not discover Christ on their own. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. And any time after the resurrection, when Jesus is recognized by his disciples, is because he revealed himself physically to them in their presence. They do not discover them, him by themselves. The same thing is true spiritually. No one discovers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, who died for their sins. He reveals himself to us and to those whom he wants to save. So Christ reveals himself physically and spiritually to those of us who need to know him and know about him. And that revelation is not a discovery. It's a revelation that comes only from God to those whom he wants to reveal himself to and no one else. And he revealed himself, it says, in this way. That's huge, in this way. Because I'm convinced that the disciples had a choice, if they had been given a vote, if it had been a democracy or maybe a Southern Baptist church, they would have had a business meeting and taken a vote. And the disciples, if they had known the outcome, would have said, Jesus, I'd rather you reveal yourself in a different way than this way. Why is that? Because they spend all night long out in the sea fishing only to come up empty. They had a sweat equity in the process of this revelation that I think they would have rather skipped than have gone through. Anybody know anything what I'm talking about in your life? Lord, I'd rather not go through that for you to reveal yourself to me in this way. But the fact of the matter is, we don't choose how he reveals himself to us. He does. And he allows his disciples to go through an all-night-long fishing adventure with all of the experience and all the equipment that anybody could possibly have to catch fish in a place that was familiar to them, only to come up empty, so that at the end of that, they would recognize their insufficiency and look to him for their sufficiency. And so he chose to reveal himself this way. So at any time, anywhere, you find yourself in a place like the disciples, you're sweating and tired and life is difficult and hard and you wish things were different, just know that, that Jesus is revealing himself to you through that often, that difficulty, in a way that you would never have listened. He would have never gotten your attention unless you had gone through the dynamic of that way. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathan, Nathaniel, and Cain of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of the disciples were together. Who's there? We see by the text that Peter is there, that Thomas is there, the two sons of Zebedee are there. Who are those? Come on, church, who are those? James and John, and two other disciples. Many believe that it was Philip and Nathaniel. So who's not present? We know that Matthew is not present. Bartholomew is not present. Uh, we know that also that Simon, too, is not there, and James, too, is not there. So there are four disciples not present, which means there are seven who are there, right? Seven disciples are at the Sea of Galilee there to meet Jesus. They're there to meet Jesus, seven out of the twelve. Now, why are the other four not present, some might ask? Well, many believe it's, it's not biblically 100% accurate. It's a guesstimation. It's an idea. It's a speculation that... 
when the 11 were in the upper room and they were told to meet Jesus in Galilee, it would be kind of strange for 11 disciples who were fearful of their lives to leave altogether. I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, I have. The streets are very narrow. Eleven men traveling together would have been suspicious. It would have drawn attention. And so they decide that they would leave two or three or four at a time. And so they leave at at different time intervals. And they go through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to Galilee. They make the trip to Galilee, which is a familiar place where they have met Jesus many, many times before. You see, this was their home base. It was a place where Christ often retreated to with his disciples. It was a place of security, of rest, and of comfort. And so they knew exactly the place where they were to meet Jesus. And so they went to that place, maybe two by two or three by three or four by four, whatever. But they went there to meet Christ in a familiar place. And so we have seven of the disciples who are present to meet Jesus. Verse 3, and Simon Peter said to them, Simon Peter, who's always the one opening in his mouth and sticking his foot in his mouth. Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody know anybody like that? Raise your hand if you do. Maybe you're sitting next to that person at this point. uh, And Simon Peter then says to them, what does he say? I am going fishing. It's not an invitation. He is not saying, hey boys, you want to go fishing with me? He said, I don't know what you guys are doing, but... I'm tired of waiting. I'm going fishing. I am going fishing. Anytime I gets in the mirror and you put your attention on I, it always leads to catastrophic things. Peter says, I am going fishing. Simon Peter was called away from fishing for fish, if you remember his call by the Lord. Simon, you're no longer going to fish for fish. You're going to become a fisher of... Men. And so he abandoned all of that and he then followed Christ. Now, three and a half years later, he's finding himself in a familiar place. It's his home place. It's his own place where he grew up, place he had fished all of his life. And he makes the decision I'm tired of waiting to meet Jesus. I am going fishing, boys. And what do they do? Notice what they say. And they, all of the other six, say to him, We will go with you. Smart idea? Bad idea. Bad idea. But it only takes one sometimes, right, to lead the pack in the wrong direction. We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. Where are they? They're in the boat, out on the sea, fishing for fish. They are not there to meet Jesus in Galilee They are not there. They are now not in the place they were supposed to meet Christ, and they're in a place where Christ said, didn't say, meet me here. Yes, meet me in Galilee. And we've had this discussion before. I have, uh, my wife and I have, and and, uh, several friends of mine have had, because I've, I've questioned other guys about this, because did Jesus say, meet me in Galilee or meet me on the sea in Galilee? Well, it's kind of dubious. Is this really a sin? Are they misbehaving? Are they mis- misdirected? misdirected? Are they, they disobeying the Lord? I think we could probably cut them some slack and maybe say maybe it's not outright disobedience. But not all good ideas are good ideas. You know what I'm talking about? Um, he says, meet me in Galilee, not meet me on the sea in Galilee. 
And we know according to Matthew 28, Jesus said to them, I want to meet you in Galilee. In Matthew 28, 16, they went to Galilee. In Matthew 14, 28, Jesus says, meet me in Galilee. And in 16, 7, when Mary sees Jesus, Jesus tells her to tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And so here they are in Galilee where they have been told to meet Christ. And Christ is delayed in his coming. And they decide to do something, to make something happen because they're just sitting there doing nothing, waiting on Christ. Let me, let me just say this right off the bat. Waiting is not doing nothing. You hear me? Waiting doesn't mean you're doing nothing. A lot of people think that if I'm waiting, I'm not doing something. Waiting is doing something. You're waiting on the Lord. And until the Lord tells you to go, until he gives you instruction, until he tells you what to do, you don't do anything and you wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is, in fact, doing something. And many of us believe that if we're not making some sort of physical progress or some sort of sweat equity into something, that we're actually not doing anything. Don't do anything until you've been instructed to do something. Wait on the Lord. Waiting is doing something. Turn to your neighbor and say, waiting is doing something. So what are you waiting on? You want to grab the steering wheel? You want to grab the bull by the horns? You want to press the pedal to the metal? You want to make something happen? Why? Because you're tired of waiting. And waiting seems like I'm doing nothing. But the reality is waiting on the Lord is, in fact, one of the most spiritual things you can do until you get instruction from the Lord. Don't do anything. Wait on the Lord until you get instructions from him. Why? Because notice now the recognition that we're going to find in the disciples. The second part of verse 3 says, But that night they caught nothing. Don't, don't, don't overlook that too quickly. But, however, it's a big word, however, but, by the way, that night they fished all night long. All night long. It was a custom in this particular day and time for them to fish at night because it was the coolest time. And more than likely, many believe it is when the fish were most available. And so they were fishing all night long. All night long. And they caught what? Come on, church. What did they catch? Nothing. Say that again. Nothing. nothing. How much is nothing? Zero. Nada. Zero. All night long, they caught nothing. This was their home base. They grew up on the Sea of Galilee. They had fished there all of their lives. They had all the best equipment, all of the experience, all the know-how, everything possibly available to them in order to catch fish. And they had a boat, and they went out there with all of their wisdom and all of their insight and all of their favorite fishing spots. And in spite of all of their sweat equity involved in this, all night long, they caught zero, nothing. They didn't catch anything to show for their labor. They kicked up a lot of dust. They didn't get what they desired. That's kind of the way it happens, isn't it, when we're going on our own? <laughs> isn't it? And just as day was breaking, the sun is coming up, Jesus was standing on the shore. 
The idea here is that Jesus is standing on the shore and that Jesus is on the shore for quite some time. We're going to see it in a minute because he's been there long enough for coal to form from the fire that he had created earlier than when they arrived. Jesus has been standing there the whole time watching them try to cast numerous times and come up with nothing. And he just stands there and he watches. I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that in our, in our work, in our labor, in our toil to make something happen and nothing is happening, that God has forgotten about us. He's not seeing us. He's not watching us. He doesn't know what we're doing. But the fact of the matter is he does. But he's not going to intervene until he's ready and until you're ready. Because had Christ intervened too earlier, maybe it would have not served the purpose for which he allowed them to do what they were doing. And so Jesus is standing there on the shore, and he's watching. They're only about 100 yards away. And he stands there on the shore, yet, it says, the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Why? Because he didn't reveal himself yet to them. Notice verse 5, Jesus said to them, finally he breaks his silence, Children! Is that odd? Children? You know what this original language here means? Hey, boys! Hey, boys, hey, guys, it's a term of endearment. Hey, boys, hey, guys, he says to them, do you have any fish? Hey, boys, do you have any fish? Did Jesus not know the answer? Is that why he asked the question? No, he knows the answer even before he asks it. Why is he asking? He's setting them up because he wants them to give him the answer to recognize that in their best effort, in all of their experience, in all of their wisdom, in all of their stuff that they've, they've caught nothing, and say, hey, boys, have you caught anything? And notice the Bible says, they answer him, all of the seven disciples on the boat together, together, they answer him one word. Any fishermen in here at all? Come on. Any fishermen here? I know we've got a beautiful lake right over here, right? Is there any fish in that lake? We got one fisherman over here, that's it? Okay. How hard is it for a fisherman to say he's caught absolutely nothing? Come on. They're always talking about the one that got away, right? Or the ones they almost got in. Now I know there's some here in Colorado that you know catch and release. But even though they catch and release, they go for the fun, but they go to catch fish. Why? Because it's fun catching fish and you get hooked on it, and it's hard not to go fishing. Ask a spouse who's married to one who likes to go fishing, right? And so for them to say no, it is a big thing to admit that we have caught nothing in our best effort with all of our experience. We know these waters. We have lived here. We are smarter than these stupid fish. We've got all the best stuff. And yet, in spite of our best effort, we are inadequate to do what we want to accomplish to do. Why is that a huge recognition? Because sometimes we, like them, don't want to recognize that either, do we? There's an admittance of, I can't do it without you, God. It is an interdependence upon the Lord that helps us recognize that we cannot do it on our own. We need Jesus. And sometimes we don't learn that lesson until what? We try it without him, and then what happens? Uh-oh. <laughs> Lord, my marriage isn't going well. Why? Because I left you out of it. 
Lord, raising my kids the way that they need to be raised, it's not going well with them. Why? Because I've left you, Jesus, out of this. Lord, my finances are not going well. Why? Because I've left you out of my finances. And so as a result of that, in our best effort, with our best wisdom and all of our, our best equipment and, and all of the things the world has to offer, you cannot accomplish and achieve the best that God has for you without Jesus. It always winds up empty and disappointment, disillusionment, and disaster. But Jesus doesn't leave them there, does he? Aren't you glad he doesn't leave you in your failure? I ask you, aren't you glad he doesn't leave you in your failure? Come on, everybody said yes. Why is that? Because this is a church filled with people who are failures without Jesus. Right? There's nobody perfect in here. And without Jesus, we're all in a mess. And Jesus, then, he says to them, Hey, boys, you got any fish? They said, no. He said, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. The word cast is a command. It's an imperative. It's not an option, not a choice for them. And Jesus, even though he's unrecognized by them, tells them to cast their net on the other side. So here he's saying a command. But he's making a commitment with this command. He said, if you will do that, what will happen? You will catch some. He doesn't tell them the amount of the catch prior to the catch, but he says, you will catch some. You will find some. Now, I don't know about you, but most fishermen, when they're fishing and they're having a bad day, and somebody comes up and said, hey, you're using the wrong kind of bait, or you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat, what does that normally do to that fisherman? Come on, you're a fisherman. What would that do to you? Really? Really? You think the disciples thought that to each other? They probably turned to each other and Really? Like we haven't cast it on the right side of the boat before? Really? Man, we've cast it to the left, to the right, over here, over there. We've done everything we can. And this guy says, cast it on the right side? Really? And he says, if we'll do that, we'll catch something. Then finally somebody comes to their senses and they say, well, maybe he sees something we don't see. What, what could it do? Right? Why not? Right? And so they cast it. They comply with the command. They do what Jesus says to do. They cast it. And notice that word now. That is a large word in this text. And now everything changes. And now, notice what happens. They were not able to haul it in. Here's a catch, man. So huge that seven guys can't bring it on the boat to secure the catch. And notice, because of the quantity of the fish. An enormous catch, a catch of a lifetime, a catch possibly they have never seen before in their time while fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Verse 7, the disciples whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore... Does that ever strike you as weird that John is described as the disciple that was loved by Jesus, therefore? You ever felt like the Lord loved somebody more than you? Come on. You ever felt like that? Haven't you? They're God's favorite. Look how long they love me the way they love me. You know? How many of you were mama's favorite when you were a kid 
you're pointing to somebody. We have a tendency to think that, you know, our parents have favorites, right? And uh, so we have a tendency to convey that to God. Actually, God has no favorites. He loves all of us exactly the same, gave us exactly the same Savior and exactly the same salvation. We may feel as if God loves somebody more than us, but he doesn't love anybody more than he loves you or less than he loves you. And here the disciple whom Jesus loves says to Peter, he says to Peter, who got him in this mess to begin with? Huh? Who was it? Said, I'm going fishing. It was Peter. And now John is turning to Peter and says, it is the Lord. It is the Lord who is responsible for the catch. Duh. I remember a time back in the Gospel of Luke when we had been fishing all night long and Jesus had cast your net over here and we did, and it was full of fish. I've been here before. You ever felt like you got to learn the same lesson more than once? Huh? What's wrong with you people? I'm in the same boat. I, don't, I must be pretty dense because sometimes I have to go through the same experience twice before I finally get it. Right? Don't you? And all of a sudden he said, it is who? The Lord. L-O-R-D. The Master. The Lord of my failure. The Lord of my life. The Lord of this catch. He is responsible for it all. Don't take credit for what belongs to the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Simon Peter, who says to them, boys, I'm going fishing, and they all follow him, and he gets the catch of a lifetime, all of a sudden recognizing and realizing that he wasn't really seeking fish after all. What was he seeking? Jesus. The catch of a lifetime didn't mean anything to him anymore. The treasures of this life and the things that he thought his heart desired no longer became a priority. There was a whole change in his perspective. All of a sudden now, the fish meant absolutely nothing to him. Why? Because Jesus was on the shore, and I want to be with him more than I want this stuff. And he put on his clothes, and he wrapped his cloak around him so he could swim. And he was 100 yards, and he dove in, and he swam as fast as he could to get to Jesus. Notice verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land for about 100 yards off. The other disciples, John, the responsible disciple, thought, you know, if the Lord wanted us to have this catch, he wouldn't have given it to us, so therefore he must want to use it for his glory. And so they bring it to the shore, and they drag it on the shore, and they, they, they put the fish on the shore, and the fish are flopping on the shore, on, on the, uh, like, like they would bring in the catch. And what do the disciples do? They, like Peter, walk away from the catch of a lifetime, leaving those fish flopping on the shore, and they seek Jesus. Like Simon Peter, they had a realignment of their value system. Their priorities all of a sudden were totally and completely changed. The fish meant nothing to them. Only Jesus did. You know, when you get to that time and that point in your life where the only thing and only one that matters is Jesus, that is the best place to be in your relationship to him. Because the reality is for a disciple of Christ, the only one that matters is Jesus. The only thing that matters is my intimacy and my closeness and my relationship to him. He's the priority of my life. What a recovery from failure to faith. 
from faith to fellowship and communion with him. But notice in verse 9, we're going to look at the revelation. Look at the revelation. Jesus wanted to reveal himself to them. Remember, he, he chose to reveal himself to them in this way. What is he revealing to them? What is he revealing to us? What can we learn today from this passage about who he is? When they got out of the land, got on, when they got out on land, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. What is it revealing? He's revealing his dependability. He's saying to them, hey boys, the very thing that you sought, the fish, remember that? Remember that? They're already here. Already had it here. You didn't need to spend all that time and all that sweat equity and all of that frustration out there. I already had it here for you if you had sought me first. If you had waited on me, it would have been here. You would have saved yourself a lot of grief, a lot of heartache, a lot of stress, a lot of argument between the two, you know, the seven of you on the boat. Can you imagine the seven on the boat? We're we're not catching anything. Peter, this is your fault. No, it's John's fault. You guys can't fish for the flip. I'm the only one. Here's the fisherman and blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm talking about? And the whole time, Jesus had the fish already prepared for them. Did you notice a charcoal fire? How long does it take to make wood into charcoal? He didn't go to the store and buy charcoal like we do today. He had to make it. It took a while, right? So he'd been there for quite some time. I don't think he snapped his fingers and there was charcoal. And here the fish are there. Notice not only his dependability, but in verse 10, he reveals his inclusivity. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Did you notice Peter? First one to go fishing, but he's the first one to go hauling the fish, isn't he? Yeah? And he's including them in what he is providing. I don't know why in the world that God would include me in his divine plan. I don't know why he'd include you either. We human beings are so unreliable, aren't we? We're so undependable. We're so flaky. We're hot one minute for him and cold the next. We're distracted easily. We have worldly preoccupations and all kinds of things pulling on us. And there are many times that that we feel like as we're swimming against the tide and we're swimming upstream that we get dragged in. Why? Because of our own lack of discipline. and, And yet he includes us in the whole process of bringing in the catch. And notice it says, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. He's revealing his faithfulness. Not only is he a dependable God and wanting to invite us into the process, he's very faithful to those he invites into the process because notice it says, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. There's a gospel net that is often cast, and we cast the gospel net, and he saves them. And the idea and the understanding for me is if we can build an analogy off this, is once the net has been cast and we are in his net, that we are forever eternally secure and we're safe. We can never, ever be lost. Those of us who had nothing to do with our salvation cannot lose what we've been given because we didn't do anything to earn it. And there are some out there who call themselves evangelicals who would want to convince us that once you're saved, you're not always safe. 
then unless you live up to a certain standard or do a certain thing or live a certain way, you, you, you know, you're just not in the net. The last time I saw it, we're saved by grace through, we're saved by grace through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift, the gift of God. The prodigal son, even though he strayed from the Lord, from, I mean, from his father, never stopped being related to his father, did he? Did he? He was still his father's son, right? He was born, and eventually he repented and returned home, right? And it's great to know that, that, that my father, Ron Boswell, gave birth to me, and my relationship with my earthly father can never be changed. I can change my name from Boswell to Smith, but I, I, can, I can't change that. It forever is, is something I will live with. Why? Because my father is... I know, ladies, the lady, my mother Marlene had something to do with it, too. I'm not trying to shortchange you, okay? All right? You're, once you're related to the Father, you're always related to the Father. And to know that you're eternally secure and safe in your salvation. See, we don't live to be saved. We live because we are saved. We love out of our salvation, not unto our salvation. Wish I could camp out there a little bit longer, but, but I can't. Notice he says to them, verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. He's inviting them to come and to dine. Now, we in this culture have a tendency to think that's not a big deal, but in this culture it's a big deal because to dine with someone was to be intimate. It was something that you took your time. It was a time of intimacy, of interaction, of relationship, of, of getting close to someone. We sit down at a table and some of us are going to do that in a minute, and we want to be served in 30 minutes, and we went in and out, right? But in this culture, they dine. They took their time, and he's inviting them. And I think it's, it's awesome that Jesus invites us into an intimate love relationship with him, and he wants to spend time communing with us and relaying to us in, a, in an intimate relationship. Come and have breakfast, he says. But none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. He's revealing his sovereignty. He is Lord. He wasn't just Lord over the catch. He wasn't just Lord in their recovery. He wasn't just Lord in all of the elements that brought them up to this point. He's Lord of their lives. I am the Lord of your life. I'm your master. You notice what it says in verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. He's revealing his humility. Imagine Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Stooping like a servant as his disciples are there. Stooping and serving them. What an incredible thing. To realize as a disciple. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. And he is displaying this humility to his disciples as an example to them. And Christ is serving his disciples to display his humility to them. You know, every other God that I know of that exists in this world and every other religion 
is not this kind of humble God. Verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples and after he was raised from the dead. He's revealing to his disciples his invincibility. You can't kill me. <laughs> you just can't. You can conduct a mock trial, accuse me of things that I didn't do, find me guilty, make me carry a cross to a place called Golgotha, nail my body to a cross, suspend me up in the air, watch me die, declare me dead, then take my body and bury it in a tomb, put a stone over it, seal it, and put some guards there. But you know what? I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm invincible. And this act and my presence are revealing my invincibility. And we have a tendency, I think, to forget the invincibility of Jesus Christ, who is not dead, but who has been risen from the dead. And we, with him, because of him and through him, his church is, like him, an invincible church. And we are an invincible people. But we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, can we? We live in a nation that believes that. Hey, brother, what's your name? Bill, Bill come up here a minute. You got some strings right there, right, Bill? How many of you know Bill? Anybody know Bill? Okay. Is this going to be completely embarrassed, Bill, probably? You think? You look probably. like just a pretty secure dude, man. Do me a favor. Can you take your right shoe, your right foot, take your shoestrings, and just pull yourself up like this? Okay? Now do it with the other at the same time. You can't do that, man? Why not? You'd have to defy gravity, right? Yeah. So I'm saying that you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, can you? Nope. But we try. Every day. Every day. Why do we do that? No patience. No patience. You know what? I have the same problem. I do it the same way. Thank you, brother. Yeah. We are self-made people in the United States of America, aren't we? We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Come on. We're in the northwest part of this state. Aren't we? We are. We're workers. I mean, north, northeast, sorry. <laughs> You're right. The northwest are a bunch of wimps. Some of the northeasterns over here. You guys are hard workers. Nobody gives you anything, right? We're Americans. We're strong. We're independent. We are free. And we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Really? I don't care how hard you work, how long you work, how much sweat equity you have in what you're trying to accomplish, you can't do it without Jesus. You can't. You'll end up empty, lonely, frustrated, depressed, and with nothing to show for your work of any value, of any consequence. I've done a lot of funerals in 40 years as being a senior pastor. I have never seen a hearse 
being followed by a U-Haul. And at the end of your life, what really matters isn't what you've possessed. It's who possesses you. Will you wait on him? I don't know what you're waiting for today. Maybe something personal, maybe something financial, maybe something physical, maybe something spiritual, maybe something in your marriage, your spouse, your children. We're all waiting on God to do something today. How will you wait on him? Will you grab the bull by the horns, take the steering wheel, press the pedal to the metal and make something happen? Or will you wait? And when you hear that little voice in the back of your head saying, you ain't doing nothing, you're just waiting, you remind that little voice in your head saying, waiting is doing something. It's the best thing to do until I get a go-ahead from God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to be in this place today for how you have reminded us through the failure of your disciples that failure is not the end of the line. Lord, in our sin, we were failures. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We know that the wage of that sin is death. But you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son to take upon himself our sin and die in our place on the cross. And now through faith in him, we can move from failure to faith. You're an incredibly redeeming God. So God, reveal to us today as only you can, who you are and how you can transform our failure, our sin. Lord, there's some of us here today who are disciples who have a hard time with waiting. We're not very patient. We want to go it alone. We, we just kind of grab the bull by the horns and grab the steering wheel and oh, we press the pedal to the metal. And God, I pray you'd help us recognize who you are as you reveal unto us who you are so that we might step back in our failure and see you for who you are and trust you in what you're doing. Lord, we may not always understand, we may not always like what you're doing, but Lord, we know that you love us so much that whatever you're doing in our period of waiting, it's what is best for us. And it's the method and the means that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in a way like we have never seen you before in a way we've never known you before. So, Lord, today we trust you, not only as our Savior, but with our lives, with our marriages, with our children, with our families, with your church. Go with us now as we go with you. In Jesus' name, amen.